Good morning again. Uh, so we have a lot to pack into a very small amount of time. So I'm going to summarize the book of Judges for you. God called his people to holiness. The people said, yes, we love it. We enjoy the blessings. They said, eventually, I forget you. They go back to their pagan ways and they compromise. They get destroyed by enemies and they cry out to God, help save, and God saves. Uh, this happens 350 years, about uh, 15 different times we're going to see in the book of Judges. The last time we have seen Gideon being called out by God and God said, I need you to lead my people to freedom. And Gideon goes, no, I'm too weak, I'm too shy, I'm small, I'm not unique enough, I'm not a warrior. Um, and God says, it doesn't matter, I'm going to call you to do it. And Gideon was given a test. I need you, Gideon, in Judges chapter 6, to stand up and tear down the altars in your own family yard. And so Gideon does, under the cover of night, with a couple of his men, pull down this Baal altar, made to Baal in Ashraf, and they burn a bull of sacrifice upon that, and the next day, the town folks are wildly upset that their God had been destroyed, which should have told them something. Now, these are all Israelites. And Gideon's dad says, you know what? If Baal is that big and important and powerful, let Baal contend for himself. We don't have to defend Baal. Let Baal defend himself. And guess what Baal did? Nothing. He's made out of stone and wood in our imagination. He had no power whatsoever. But remember, Gideon's first call by the angel of the Lord was to rescue his people because the Midianites were invading and constantly pestering and enslaving and taking all of the provisions of the Israelites. So Gideon still had not finished what he was called to do. All of this is taking place from our geographical location. If you think of the Jordan River as I-25, running north and south, and uh, Jerusalem is sort of where Calvary would be in relationship. All of this is happening way up on 25 near Dillon and Purcell, where those two roads intersect 25. So it's quite a ways far north. Um, Fountain and Springs has not encroached in there too much, but I imagine within our lifetime they will move both ways and we'll just be one big city with Denver. Isn't that awesome? Can't wait for that to just be a suburb of Denver. I'm kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. Um, so that's where we left Gideon and his call. He did something, but now he's a little bit quiet. In the next few verses, especially in chapter 6, verse 33 through 35, we have this um, call for reinforcements, and there's an answer to that call for reinforcements. Verse 33, now all the Midianites and the Malachites, these are the invaders, uh, of the, and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Now that's all on the north side of where we are. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, which means it overcame Gideon, which the Spirit of the Lord gave him confidence and power and strength and an anointment to that position. So the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. And the Abrazites were called out to follow him. Now the Abrazites is just simply Gideon's uh, family, uh, all divided into little tribes. That was just his kind of family. So his family were called out to follow him, and they did. And he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, 
and they all went up to meet them. So in that geographical area, everything kind of north side of Pueblo, as far west as you can go, and as far east as you can go, he sent out the word. If you're one of Israel's tribes, you need to come together against this common enemy. You need to do it. And they did. They answered the call. For seven years at this point, they had refused to go to war. They were scared. They were hiding. They didn't believe God's promise that this was their land that God had given it to them and their descendants. Instead, they cowered and hid and, and ran and hide and, and refused to stand up against these invaders. But Gideon, the moment he had seen God act in his life, got a little bit braver with the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him and anointing him and putting him in that position. He kind of got the courage to say, troops, we need to get together and go. And you would think that if the story ended there, the next verse would be, and Israel was victorious over the Midianites, and they served and worshiped God for 40 years as long as Gideon lived. That's normally what happens in this chapter, or in this book so far, but it doesn't happen. Instead, we are immediately faced with verse 36 through 40 of Judges chapter 6. And let me read these in full, and then I'll come back to them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wood on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said. Verse 38, And it was so. When he rose early the next morning, and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, uh, let me speak just one more. Please let me test just one more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God said so, and God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. There is an age-old question that everyone struggles with. How do I know this is God's will? Fill in the blank. How do I know God wants me to marry this person? How do I know God wants me to take this job? How do I know God wants me to move? How do I know God wants me to go to the mission field? How do I know God wants me to serve? How do I know God wants me to tithe? How do I know? Fill in the blank. Has anyone ever had that question in their life? Do I, how, how do I know if God wants me to do something? I think if you're out of diapers, you've probably had this question a million times. What should I do? That's another way of asking it. What should I do? Gideon was faced with such a moment of doubt and struggle and asked God for proof that he was with him and that this is what he was indeed called to do. If you remember the very first sermon of Judges, I said, when we look at the book of Judges, all of it is true. All of it happened exactly the way it said, but... Because it is a book of recorded history, it doesn't mean we should do it. It's just recording exactly what was done. 
and where we should follow it, we're going to find lots of Scripture talking about, hey, we should do the same thing. Nowhere else in Scripture, nowhere else in Scripture, does it ever mention we should put out a fleece and ask God for a sign. Never. Well, why did Gideon do it? Well, what book of Scripture would Gideon have turned to for help? What, what book do you think he would have turned to for help? Probably at this time. Well, I know at this time. He did not have a Bible to turn to. He may have had the book of Job, because Job was the first book ever historically written down, but he probably may have had fragments of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, because Moses wrote that. But he didn't have any of the Proverbs. He didn't have any of the Psalms. He didn't have any of the New Testament. He didn't have any of the wisdom literature. He didn't have a book to turn to and go, God, how do I know you're there and how do I know you're leading? All he had was this imaginative act of what would be impossible physically to happen. If I put this garment out, this wool, and there's only water on that and there's none on the ground, that's remarkable. If he does it two days in a row, reverse it, remarkable. Maybe God is in it. And as we're going to see at the very end of the message today, God is never going to call you to put out a fleece and test him. Is this God's will or not? He gives us amazing clarity on how to figure out what his will is with very simple, precise, repeatable steps. And none of it has to do with a miraculous God do something wonderful and amazing so that I can see you. In fact, Jesus was asked several times by Pharisees and Sadducees and the lawyers and the scribes to do these mighty, magnificent works. And he says, if you don't believe the prophets in the Old Testament, if you don't believe the Father's word, it doesn't matter what I do, you won't believe it. You will come up with some natural reason and excuse why it happened. Slight a hand, maybe. Or maybe the person wasn't really dead or really lame or really deaf or really blind. Or maybe everybody had a snack lunch that they weren't showing you and then pulled it out and said, oh, Jesus is a miracle worker. They will come up with any excuse whatsoever to dismiss the supernatural realm of God's acting in our lives. But we do not need a voice from heaven. We do not need the skies to open up or a river to part or the homeless to be fed by miracle. We don't need that to know, is this God's will? And, it, and it's amazing to me how Gideon, how, how the recorder of this chapter talks about the scenario, the situation. Gideon then said to God, Gideon so, he has a relationship with God. We're looking at verse 36. He has a relationship with God. He's talking to him. He saw him. He gave a sacrifice to God in which God miraculously burnt it all up with a touch of his staff. He's already seen miracles. He says, If Israel will be saved by my hand, as you have said, I don't even know how Gideon got that sentence out. Because Gideon admitted, I'm hearing this from you, God. I'm hearing this from you. I know exactly who the source is. It's you, God, that is giving me this information that I'm supposed to save Israel, as you've said. So he goes, Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool out on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and dry on the ground, then I shall know you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. He constantly is admitting 
He's receiving direct revelation from God, as you've said, as you've said, as you've said. He knows exactly where this information is coming from. It's not coming from his imagination. He's not hearing voices or schizophrenic. He knows God is revealing something to him, but he's doubting it. Does God really want me to step forward and do this? He's doubting God. He's not doubting that God exists. He's doubting, God, are you really calling me to something that is scary? Yes. Are you really calling me out of my comfort zone? Yes. Are you really asking me to put my literal life on the line? Yes. Gideon doesn't doubt that God is real. He doubts the sincerity of God's message. Can this really be, can he really be asking me to give up everything? Even my own life? And he goes on and asks God to do it a second time. That verse 38, those very first words, and it was so. I think this shows incredible patience and assurance from God. God could have said, oh, Gideon, I've already done two things for you, haven't I? I've already done the miracle in front of you, turning all the sacrifice into just burnt. I also saved you and showed you how to pull down that idol. You did it, and the nation accepted it. This is the last straw. I can't help, if, if you can't muster the strength or courage to do this, I'm done with you, I'll find someone else. Maybe you're right, Gideon, I need to find someone who is from a better tribe, who is a strong individual, not as weak as you are. Because that's sometimes how we react to people. Come on, I'll give you two or three chances. Come on, by the third chance, you better get it, or i got to turn to somebody else. You can't do it. But God was incredibly patient. And no, this is not a sermon about patience, but if you're patient with me, let me explain. (laughs) Patience is not just waiting. Patience is having the right attitude while waiting. All of us wait. We can either wait with anger. We can wait with disappointment. We can wait with regret. We can wait with pride and arrogance. How dare you make me wait? But patience is having the right attitude of calmness and long-suffering in the situation and towards the people. And yes, I have a lot of patience to still learn. No doubt about that. But Gideon, Gideon tried so hard to weasel out of this with human explanations. Because if one of those nights was not successful, I know what Gideon's response would have been, same as ours. All right, God, you're not in it, neither am I. If you're not in it, I'm not in it. But God answered it, and it was so, both times, without fail. So Gideon's problem was not questioning God's existence. Rather, he was doubting, is God really in it? Is this what God really wants me to do? And maybe by this time in the message, which has only gone on a few minutes, you already, in the back of your mind, know exactly what God is asking you to do. I don't know what it is. But you know, as soon as that subject came up, what is God's will? How do I figure out God's will for my life? How do I know God is in it, will walk with me if he's calling me to it? 
There is something in your mind that God has been working on in you, maybe for years, maybe for a day, maybe for a lifetime. And you know exactly what that is. Do you not want to figure out, should you take that step? Don't you want to figure out, is God going to be in that with me? And that's what the rest of this message is all about. How do I figure out, is God really calling me to do that? Because if I do that, it might cost me friends or so-called friends. It might cost me comfort. It might cost me money. Tim, how dare you say that God might cost me money if I follow him? Or it might cost me my life. I want to encourage you that you can indeed take God at his word. In Psalm 61, and it's a very short psalm, when you begin that process of doubting, can I take God at his word? He says this, can I really believe it? First of all, I think you can go to God and say, I'm struggling. I'm unsure. That's what Gideon did. When God called Gideon to lead his army, Gideon said, are you sure? He communicated with God. Are you absolutely sure? I want to put you to the test because what you're asking me is to give my life over to this calling. He wants to be sure. And when we're in that situation where God is calling us to serve, to give, to honor, whatever it might be, it's important that we know we can go to God and say, I'm struggling with it. I'm struggling. And this chapter, Psalm 61, is a beautiful starting point when we are at that crossroads of figuring out, can I really believe what God has said for my life? Listen to the psalm. To the choir master with stringed instruments of David, hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king, and may his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God appoints steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. What does that have to do with taking God at his word? That's asking God the most basic of human needs. Be here for me. Show me that you're greater than I am. Show me that you are my protector. Show me the rock. Show me something greater than myself. You've proved it time and time in the past. Prove it now that I have to make this decision. What should I do? Prove to me again you are that God who hears me, knows me, cares for me, and overwhelms me with love and faithfulness. I love the idea 
of David when he says, what I need from you, God, is for you to appoint not soldiers to protect me, not wealth to make me comfortable, not relationships to make me happy, but appoint what? Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over me. Gideon was longing for that reassurance of God's faithfulness and his steadfast love or patience. Gideon, though, did not take God at his word initially. And God responds with patience and assurance without any hesitation. God is very patient with Gideon during this doubting, as he is with us. In less than two minutes, I wrote down several scripture verses that talk about God's patience and long-suffering. Patience and long-suffering and loving-kindness are the same word in the Hebrew language. And in Exodus 34, 6, Numbers 14, 8, Nehemiah 9, 30, Jonah 4, 2, Romans 9, 22, 1 Peter 3, 20, 2 Peter 2, 15, and Romans 2 all talk about God's amazing, loving patience with us, having the right attitude of love and mercy in a situation that is stressful and difficult. God's patience and long-suffering to us seems to be inexhaustible. In Nehemiah chapter uh, 9, and I know that we went through the book of Nehemiah several, several years ago, but in this chapter, chapter 9, Nehemiah goes through a whole history lesson of Israel. If you ever want a chapter in the Old Testament to summarize what the Old Testament is about, Nehemiah chapter 9 is a great chapter to go to. And in the process of that reciting of Israel's history, which was success, compromise, failure, crying, success, uh, compromise, crying, and, and so forth, repeatedly, Nehemiah comes to these words in verse 30 of chapter 9. Many years you, O Lord, <laughs> bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, look at God here. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are gracious and merciful, God. Even though an entire nation for thousands of years, 1,500 years at least, maybe 1,700 years, went through this cycle. Loving God, following Him, compromising, falling out of favor with God, feeling the uncomfortableness of that rebellion and discipline, crying out to God, and God sends a Savior. Gideon just being the last in a line. And Nehemiah admits you could have turned your back on them. You could have said, last chance. But he is a great, merciful God who never turns his back on you, his people. You might feel he turned his back, but your feelings can be very deceptive. 
We do not rely on our feelings to gauge how close am I to God and how close is he to me. We can't use feelings and we don't use the supernatural miracles. So what do we use? That's what our take home is today. I know that there are a lot of verses that we're going to go through. And I know you're not going to have time to write it down, but I'm telling you, honor your version Bible app. All of these verses are there. And so you have all that information literally at your fingertips. And so I want to start by asking that question again. How do we figure out God's will and if he is with us? The first place to start, and again, we're going to go through these quickly, but we're going to go through all of them because they're all vitally necessary for us. The first verse we're going to look at is in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. And this is starting out having the right attitude. Remember I said what patience really is all about not waiting, but having the right attitude while waiting. This sets us on the course of having the right attitude during this process of dealing with, is God calling me to this? Listen to what Solomon says in verse 5 and 6. The attitude we're to have. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. If we're ever going to figure out what is God calling me to do, if we're ever going to answer that question, what should I do with my life with this decision in front of me, the first thing we have to admit, I don't have the answers. I'm not going to figure it out. I'm not the one in charge. We have to admit with incredible humbleness. I don't have all the answers, God. Lead me. You lead me. You guide me. You instruct me. You tell me. We have to admit we don't have all the answers and we can't figure it out. We are not the best thing since sliced bread. We're not. We're not the answer to the world's problems as much as we think we are. If we want to figure out, God, what should I do? We need to honestly go with him or go to him with that question. God, what do you want of me? You lead me. You guide me. You're the one who instructs me. I humbly submit to this relationship where you are God and I am not. That's the starting point. If you're already trying to figure out what the next steps are in your life or with this decision, stop. Start with the very first step. God, I admit, I don't have the answers. Lead and guide me. And he will. He'll take you right to Psalm 119, in which he says, throughout the entire psalm, but especially in verse 105 of Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. You want to know where to go, where to head, what decision to make? You turn to God's word. We have something Gideon could only dream about. We do know how to give, how to serve, how to love, how to honor, how to forgive, how to feel, how to act. He's given it to us. Everything we need to honor him with our life choices, he tells us. He tells us what good choices are and bad choices are. He tells us the right attitudes and the wrong attitudes, the right feelings and the wrong feelings. He tells us who to attach our feelings to and who to stop attaching our feelings to. He tells us. Now, he's not going to tell you what color car you should buy. Okay, he's not. He's not necessarily going to tell you what job to take, but he will give you guidelines 
He will give you basic principles. Are you doing it to honor me? Are you doing it to honor me? Does this help you honor me in a greater way? And some of the things, like the color of cars, I I don't think God really has a really huge concern in our mind, in his mind, what color car we choose, but he will make these decisions for you through his word. You probably don't want to go into debt $250,000 for that car you really want when that $20,000 car or $5,000 car will do just fine. Probably don't want you to go into debt for something like that. Of course, if you have one, talk to me and we'll, we'll go out driving. <laughs> so, the right attitude and turning to God's word. The third thing to figure out God's will for your life and direction is from Proverbs 11, verse 14. And in Proverbs 11, verse 14, Solomon writes... When there is no guidance, a people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is safety. It is good and right during that process of trying to figure out what does God want in my life to go ask people for counsel. Not ask people to agree with you. Okay, there's a difference there. Asking for counsel, asking for guidance, is admitting, I don't have it all figured out. What do you think of the situation? Because I know sometimes we can go to someone and try to reassure ourselves that this is the right step, this is the right action, this is the right decision by starting off the conversation. Now, I got a question for you. Um, You agree with me that I should probably do this, right? That's not asking for counsel. Asking for counsel is, this is what I see in God's word. This is what I see God calling me to do. Help me understand that. Are there scriptures that I'm not connecting with? Are there scriptures that I'm misunderstanding? Help me understand God's word in light of my situation. That's what seeking good counselors are about. Because no matter how many times I Google something online, I may not come to the right scripture verse. And so I have to ask people, and that is really humbling, ask people for their help spiritually. God says it's a good thing to go ask others because they may have gone through something similar or they may not have, but they can pray with you. They can support you. They can encourage you. And they might have other counselors that you can go talk to. And then lastly, in Luke chapter 11, in Luke chapter 11, not lastly, sorry, there's two more things, this one and one more. There is a very strong need of focus. Now, this is a section in Luke chapter 11 where Jesus is, again, having conversations, dialogue, debate with the religious leaders of the day. The religious leaders of the day are accusing Jesus of being uh, of the father Satan, and Jesus is having conversations to him, and he points out this really cool focus for them. He says, but woe to you, Pharisees, verse 42, For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. See, the right focus is the big focus. The right focus is the whole counsel of God. It doesn't matter if you should do this or that if you're not loving God. 
If you're not forgiving, if you're not being merciful, then I'm sure God's not going to give you clarity on what your next step should be if you're not doing the basics he's already called you to do. If he's asked you to love and you're not loving, that's what you need to work on. That's what I know God is calling you to do. That is God's will for your life. So if you're not doing those larger things of God's word, then that's what you need to start with. Don't worry about what color car then. Don't worry about what school. Don't worry about what job. You need to get to the major focus of what God has called you to be as one of his children. And that definitely starts with loving him and loving others. Being long-suffering, patient, kind, gentle, generous. If you're not doing that, then I'm not surprised God's not giving you clarity for all the other little decisions you want to make. So the focus has to be there. You focus on those big things that God has said. This is part of your life as one of my children. Don't sweat the small little decisions if you're not making that big decision to follow him in all things. Then lastly, in John chapter 10, and in order to promise to keep this short, I'm going to invite the band up here while I'm still speaking. That way when they're up here, I know I should be a little bit... uh, Shorter in my explanation. And if you're getting baptized this morning, now would be a great time for you to go and get changed and ready for that. In John chapter 10, Jesus gives us yet one more way in which we can figure out how do I know what God is asking me to do? How can I figure that out? And how do I know God is with me when I take that step? Because that's exactly what Gideon was struggling with. Doubting God's presence in this life-changing act. Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father am one. How can we doubt God is with us when we follow him? If we are one of Christ's sheep, we follow him. That's our natural instinct, is to follow our shepherd, our master, our savior. And Jesus has promised in that following In that stepping forward, how strong is the Father's protection of us? Who can snatch him out of my hand? No one. You are safe and protected and surrounded by love and faithfulness and kindness and mercy when you are in his hands. And when he calls you to be uncomfortable with your stepping out in faith, you can step out with great confidence and not doubt and ask for more proof like Gideon. But the very first time he meets you, you can say, I'll go, I'll do, I'll be. And our Savior has promised that his Father, who is greater than all, holds you every step of your journey. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the kindness of your patience. Well, Father, how we don't deserve it sometimes, but yet you are overwhelming to us. And Father, I know that we have filled our heart with so many different verses and directions this morning. Reassure us, Father, this very moment 
that what you are calling us to do, those greater things in your word, give us the strength and courage to do that in our lives today. Lead us and guide us, Father, for your name's sake. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.